you already know who it is. Um, this is going to be a very fun episode because I do not intend on editing anything. It's about 10 minutes to 6. I'm going to upload by 7 at the latest, which means I don't have time. I don't have time to edit, so this is going to be a single take, hopefully, and we're just going to roll through it. Welcome to the episode. Here comes the intro that I wrote. I saw a meteor last week. At first, I thought it was just Starlink pollution. You know, those satellites that beam the internet down to the world. They really ruin the night sky view by traveling across our view of celestial bodies. But then, I saw a fireball trail behind the flash. It looked like it was getting closer. But it might have been getting further away. It's hard to judge that kind of thing when you're looking at a three-dimensional event in two dimensions against a black plane behind it. It is nearly impossible to determine direction of an event like that, especially since the trail disappears as the air slows down the object and no longer ignites around it. It is possible that the object I saw burned up completely, or that it just slowed enough that there was no way to tell the difference between the dark space rock that I was witnessing and the dark space that was framing it. In low atmosphere, these things will slow down to a speed of maybe two or three kilometers an hour. That's still pretty fast for a chunk of space rock. But then I heard a spooky whistle, right? Like something small had rushed past somewhere, still displacing enough air to cause sound waves to emanate. Um, the intention was I was going to sit down and see how far that would travel, but without knowing the mass of the object, I would have no way of determining how much air it would displace, and you kind of have to know how much air it would displace to uh, be able to accurately calculate how far a whistle from that air being displaced would travel. You know, and at what decibels was I hearing from the source and all sorts of weird stuff. Anyways, the point is, I'm pretty sure it was close enough that it landed somewhere. Close. I'm going to go looking for it over this summer. Might take my nephew. I probably won't find it, given that uh, it could have fallen anywhere within 20, 30, 100 square kilometers. Maybe outside of that. I don't know. With good math, I could likely find the approximate path of the trail, the potential landing zone, so, but, you know, I don't know how big it was, don't know what I'm looking for exactly, so I would be guessing at best on how far the landing zone could have shifted. It might be like looking for a penny on a NASCAR track with a blindfold on. Uh, this is the part where I'm just, I'm just going to drop the t title track over top of my voice here, so... because I have been watching the NHL playoffs. Very little time for interviews, lots of time to sit and type away at an episode script. Or so I thought. actually had a couple of different interviews scheduled this week and had to redistribute all of them. Which was unfortunate. But, shit, that's life, hey? Sometimes yeah, things don't go to plan. You gotta live with it, you gotta roll with it. Life's good. 
Anyways, I really love watching NHL playoffs. They showcase the elite players in the league. Playoff NHL games are a whole different type of game than a regular season game. Just the level of intensity the players bring, and of course the crowd, everyone is so excited. My team, the Colorado Avalanche, have secured a second round playoff position and are currently playing against the St. Louis Blues. I have hope that they will continue to win and push deeper into the playoffs, and ultimately I hope they get the chance to win the Stanley Cup, skate around with that. I've said for a couple of years now that I'm not going to buy an Avalanche jersey until they win a cup, and then I'll go buy a McKinnon champion jersey, you know? Really, really pay that extra. So, I really hope they do win. And hope is a hard thing for me to come by these days. I feel as though I need to distract myself from all the evil in the world. And watching the NHL playoffs really does that. It seems... All of the news that's floating around out there is of a dark nature. Gas prices skyrocketing simply to make fat pocketbooks fatter. Oil companies are making huge profits, while the working person has to scrape together every last cent just to be able to afford to make enough to survive until the next paycheck, to keep fuel in their tank, to get to work. There's pestilence in the form of COVID for the last few years and forecasted, forecasted to be around for the foreseeable future as well. Because people just didn't, did you, like, did you read the Bible and be like, oh yeah, pestilence is sweeping through the nation. And it's because the people stopped giving a shit and stopped protecting themselves. They didn't say that. There wasn't enough space in the Bible to say that. But it's probably what happened. Humans are fucking dumb. There's war in Ukraine, possibly with the world on the brink. Like, literally, one wrong move from Russia and a NATO something, anything is struck, and it's going to be a, a big deal. <laughs> I have here written, next up after that, are we to expect famine and death? And since I wrote this at the beginning of the week... Guess what? There are literally formula shortages in the United States. Literal famine. There's only one step left. Like, <sighs> times are dark. Are we in the end times? Is that what we have to look forward to? I sure hope not. I really hope that par by participating in this NHL playoffs ritual, by cheering for my favorite team, by experiencing their joy, their pain, their success and failure, I can feel those same things. These intense temporary feelings. It's, it's so interesting because all of the success and failure will be over soon. There's a new season. You know, shortly after this one's over. It's a cycle that repeats. And so it shouldn't be a good example of change. But when all of the input that the world throws at you is depressing input, you kind of can't help but be depressed. And a little cycle 
of any other emotion is a welcome break. Like, I would be okay if Colorado loses because at least, at least I know, you know, I will feel some intense emotion. I will be mad about it. Absolutely. I'll be disappointed. But I will know that next season they get a new shot, you know? They get to try again next season. It's not a permanent, permanent thing, you know? Like COVID has been. Like a world war would be. It would have permanent repercussions. The worst thing about depression is that you really can't feel anything. Not for very long anyway. Joy, anger, love, it's all temporary. Depression replaces all of it. So being able to participate in scheduled emotional rides like this, it's a good way to inject some good vibes into my life. I got hope. Hope's a good thing. Da, da, ba, 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 here's a transition. I'm not editing anything, so here you go. Good luck. Welcome to the next section. It feels a lot like making a podcast comes quite naturally to me. And I was thinking about it this week and why it comes so natural to me. I feel like... I feel like I'm an entertainer. I feel like I'm an actor. And this is very similar to acting, in a way. I prepare a scene. I read my lines. But... I really feel as though I work best when I am able to improvise, which I guess this episode is going to be a testament to that because most of this is an improvisation. I have talking points. I have, yeah, I have talking points. That's about it. Um, and I'm just straight recording. Not a single edit's going to go on. I'm just going to send this on once it uploads. You just heard me slapping my knee there. For effective improv, though, you really need an audience to react. You take that feedback, and you move with it. I suppose that's why I find it easier for me to interview guests, because it is like improv at a table with my friends. I prepare a little bit, but I definitely veer off very often. I breach other topics, which is why my list of questions that I require myself to ask is short and kind of, kind of encompassing. They have a, a, a small target that could expand well. You pick the direct topic that is familiar to the subject. How do you know me? Where did we meet? And it's very easy to improvise, right? You play off what comes to mind or what you pull from out of their minds. I can take a memory that my sister had and expand on that. Say, oh yeah, I also remember this. Oh, I also remember that. Hey, speaking about that thing you just said, what about this other thing? Do you remember us doing that at the same time, right? It's, it's easy to explore all these different branches. It is helpful to remember that other people have memories far different from your own. Your consciousness is not the only consciousness out there. Okay, 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 okay. So I did have one edit, but it's because I'm doing this without a glass of water near me, which is a stupid, stupid idea, and I had something caught in my throat. I have sort of a base guideline, uh, rubric, I suppose, for what I want with this podcast. 
first, I'm interviewing my family and the friends that I would call my family, right? And then slowly expand the circle and move out from there, right? I would interview extended family like my cousins and my aunties, my uncles, that sort of thing. And the friends that, you know, I'm close with, but I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's essentially my brother. That's essentially like, this person is so close to me that I would feel exactly the same without them as I would if I lost a sibling, you know? And then, after I do that, I'm going to explore the same group of people via themes that are common amongst the groups. For example... I'm going to talk to friends who are pet owners, right? Or my friends who play D&D. Or my friends who are a lot older than me. Or maybe not a lot older than me. I'm good, you know, I'm going to talk to the ones who have a lot more life experience than I do. Uh, you know, that I could ask a bunch of friends, you know, do do themed themed things. I'll let the season tell the story. Hey, which friends like Valentine's? Which of my friends like Halloween, right? Perhaps I'll have Christmas-themed episodes in a week. New Year's the next. Hey, and maybe when the Queen dies, I'll interview the my friend who is the biggest royal family nerd, right? I'm sure, I'm sure there's one out there. Oh, God, here comes another shitty transition. Shitty transitions. Uh, so, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, came out this week, 20 years ago. A classic piece of movie literature. Is that the right word? Nope. Definitely isn't. A classic piece of cinematic art. Nailed it. I can call this a classic because it came out at a time where I watched movies to be entertained and didn't have an eye for the art in them. And it's an old movie that I personally love. I didn't pay much attention to score or cinematography or dialogue when I first saw this movie, but as I've grown and come to appreciate these concepts within movies, my love for this movie has only grown. Hey, if you haven't seen this movie yet, I'm gonna spoil it. All of it. But it came out 20 years ago, so that's your own damn fault. The major plot of this film is very exciting. There's an assassination attempt, a flying car chase, resulting in the assassination of the previous assassin. There's Obi-Wan, my personal favorite Star Wars character. You know? You, hey, you know my dad's name is Obi? You know, my dad's a Jedi. Uh, anyways, Obi-Wan does some Batman-style investigation stuff and finds a whole army of clones for the Republic. A whole army of people with the same motivations. He has a sweet rain fight against a super lethal bounty hunter, too. Anakin begins his rage-fueled transformation into Vader by going to Tatooine and witnessing his mother's death. Following the her torture at the hands of the Tusken Raiders. He uh, slaughters them all, kills them all, and then he cries about it. Uh, Obi-Wan follows the bounty hunter that he got in a fight with to another planet and discovers a whole different army with 
hey, this is weird, the same motivations. And this army is being created by Count Dooku. Christopher Lee, probably the best cast actor in the entire franchise. Christopher Lee is an icon. He's amazing. Throw him in anything. He'll bring just Christopher Lee level quality to it. Anyways, Dooku explains that the Senate is under Sith control, which is becoming quite obvious. Uh, another quick aside, Batman wouldn't have needed this explained to him after finding two secret armies. He would have been able to piece together that the armies belonged to the same person, and that a larger plot was afoot beyond just a few assassinations. There's some quick comic relief, where C-3PO gets his head put on a droid, and a droid's head put on his body. Anyways, Obi-Wan sends out a quick tweet or something to the Republic, informing them of an impending separatist, separatist droid army and is captured and detained. This prompts a rescue by Anakin and Padme, who also get captured. And then there's the arena scene. It's like a gladiatorial deathmatch, except these three heroes are just tied to a thing. It's more of an execution. Three really cool aliens, though, show up. They're released into this gladiator arena to the immense joy of all the Geonosians. They're like a weird insect person. And for some reason, they're all like sitting on these benches, even though they all got wings. It doesn't make sense. Like literally they could cover the whole arena. They, they could have skybox seats wherever the hell they wanted. They can fly. Okay, so there's a second edit because I completely lost track of where I was. All right, so Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan are tied to these poles. Three wicked awesome aliens show up to come execute them. Uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin do a bunch of awesome Jedi flips. Padme climbs up the pole, continues to be a badass. And then the clones show up, and a bunch of Jedi rescue the squad, right? Yoda and Mace Windu are there. Jango Fett does some more cool bounty hunter shit and blasts off some flamethrower action. And then he gets decapitated, and his son Boba Fett, who's technically just a slower-growing clone of himself, swears vengeance and shit. Dooku's like, oh man, this is a bad scene, and splits. Uh, he escapes, yeah, for sure, prompting more chase from the Jedi buddy cop team of Annie and Obi. They have a big lightsaber duel, and Anakin gets his hand cut off. Classic Star Wars. Dooku also beats Obi-Wan, which is astounding because Dooku is like an old guy, right? So this is one of those fights, uh, like a wharf fight. To, it's meant to show you that Dooku is a menace. He's more powerful than he seems. So powerful that they even toss Yoda against him, right? Old Yoda hopping around doing some great force magic shit and lightsaber battling. Dooku finally feels outmatched, and so he splits. He uh, causes Yoda to save the people, you know? And then he's like, peace, I'm out. He has some Death Star plans. He leaves all the folks still alive, right? And then Anakin and Padme get secretly married. And that's the whole episode. Let's focus on the theme here, though, right? There's a man who is creating conflict so he can expand his power. And we don't explicitly figure out in this movie that it's Palpatine. But because we, the viewer, know the future, 
and have seen the films that show an empire has formed underneath a great Sith and that Darth Vader slash huge spoiler Anakin Skywalker is his tool to do it, it becomes incredibly obvious that Sheev is the bad guy and he's playing both sides. Worse, the bad guys, quote unquote, are 99% droids that are taking orders from a chain of 1% of dudes, you know, a bunch of commanding officer type, you know, trade federation, I don't know what they would call them, ambassadors. There's a chain of command that starts with Sheev. And there isn't even a side over there worth mentioning without his interference. Like, yeah, there are these ambassadors, but they're really just pawns for him. He takes their money, makes an army for them because of sanctions he has supported and enacted within the Senate. Just to weaken both sides and make his shady political movements justified. He then takes those clones... <laughs> that Obi-Wan found previously and, you know, that showed up here to save all their butts, takes those clones, a massive, faceless army, mostly indistinguishable from each other, and expands them to include non-clones. Sure. Gotta be human, though. His stormtrooper army includes regular humans, as long as they are the right size and shape to fit the uniforms, and have the desire to create and support a monoculture empire displacing and destroying those who stand against them. <laughs> Do you think there are many alien stormtroopers? Don't even think about it. There aren't any. Zero. Not until old racist uncle Sheevy-P gets tossed into a reactor shaft and the Empire has to rebuild from scraps. Damn. Looks like the racists trying to keep everything white and exclude the aliens and foreign-looking folks are the bad guys. I was nine years old when this movie came out. And for those friends of mine who hear me talk about Star Wars, they know that I value this movie the highest. I respected Natalie Portman, slash Padme, as a powerful woman figure, partially because she was so sweet and cunning in the first movie. She made decisions. She was a political figure, right? She was important enough that at the beginning of this episode, an assassin was sent to assassin. That an assassin was sent to to kill her. She was the mother of two very powerful Force users, Luke and Leia, who were both previously established as important figures in the universe. Previously in our timeline, later in their timeline, you know, you know, with a famously evil father. And so their mother, Padme, had to be established as a credible source of good. Padme's ideals and drive for justice and liberty, especially liberty, definitely reflected in both of her children. Her goodness was passed through and helped her children to resist the temptation of the dark side of the force that took their father. <sighs> Unfortunately... Most women in the Star Wars movies were written one-dimensionally. Shmi Skywalker, Anakin's mom, was written only to be a plot point. But thankfully, the Star Wars recorded universe is a vast and diverse place, and more stories have been told than just a few told in the movies. And it continues to expand. We are hearing more stories about more kinds of people, more interesting stories with struggles that I 
as a white male, am unfamiliar with. These stories are always expanding my views and helping me grow as a human. The, these weird shows about aliens. The Star Wars series has absolutely taught me a great many lessons, right? Provided me with the ammunition to develop opinions about rebellion and oppression and redemption because Star Wars has kind of been about the underdogs most of the time, right? Fighting against the forces of evil. Because, hey, evil is very easy and that's why it spreads so well. It is hard to be a good person. It is hard to be good. It takes effort. It is exceedingly easy to be evil. And unfortunately, going with the flow is often evil, right? As many men have said in the past, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. I spent about 20 minutes today trying to figure out who that quote was actually credited to, and it's been credited incorrectly to so many people, or credited correctly to so many other people who referred to previous things, or referred to other things, and this and that, and this and that. There's no really hard thing, right? So... Just credit it. A lot of men have said it. A lot of men believe it. Star Wars teaches me that the most difficult path is going to be the one that helps the most people. The one that fights against oppression. The one that values diversity above the status quo. And so does Shrek. Here comes another edit and another shitty transition. Guess what? It's another lovely anniversary. Shrek turned 21 years old this week. Which means, I don't know if you were paying that close attention to the previous portion, it's one year older than episode two. Which means I knew Shrek before I knew Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. I was eight years old when this movie came out. I was definitely the target market. It's a silly, animated film about a hero and his sidekick saving a princess, with the added twist that the hero isn't a handsome prince, but instead is an ornery and ugly ogre who just wants some peace and quiet. He knows what he wants, and he takes the necessary steps to make it happen. It is also the story of an underdog. Shrek is someone who the rest of society would rather never think about. Unfortunately, the empirical power is concerned with perfection, and so Farquaad displaced all of those who do not fit that description out of his city-state and into the swamp, where ya boy Shrek lives. Humans only. No more fairy tale creatures. The perfect society for this short king. I say that with extreme sarcasm. Hey, wait a... Damn. It looks like the racists trying to keep everything white and exclude the aliens and foreign-looking guys are the bad guys in Shrek. Where have I heard that before? Looks like my cinematic experience has colored me into valuing the strength of diversity over the rigidity of monoculture. I speak about Shrek a lot in this podcast. 
Why? Why do I talk so much about Shrek? It is a good film. There are good lessons. It's a, it's a very good film series. There is a lot of interesting things that happen, you know, and good lessons to be learned. It's well acted. It has, it's got an all-star cast. Every time I talk about Shrek lately, I've been suggesting to the people who are unfortunate enough to have to listen that they should watch Shrek Retold. It's this very lovely fan collaboration remake of Shrek in its entirety, and it's available on YouTube for you to watch. Um, there's like 200 animators and voice actors and regular actors, but like, you know, fans, not like big name people who donated their time and created this beautiful, beautiful work of art. Uh, there's different animation styles. There's a part that's in 3D. There's a part that's animated like Japanese anime. Um, there's a live action part uh, where Farquaad's up on his thing announcing uh, the reward. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a Shrek and Donkey in a real... <laughs> it's a lovely costume. It's not a very convincing costume, though. Anyways, it's a live action port portion. And there's these two dudes. One's dressed up as a donkey and one's dressed up as Shrek, right? And they're talking about it. And, like, line for line, the dialogue is the same. The scenes are the same. Everything is the same. It's not like it's not like they told a different story. They told the exact same story, but they told it in their own way. Um, you guys should see it. So I'm giving you homework. I'm gonna leave <laughs> I'm gonna leave the link to the to the video on YouTube in my show notes here. And I want you to watch it. But what I don't hear, it's important that you watch it and ingest it. You got to sit there and watch the whole thing. You can't get up and go cook. You can't be fiddling around on your phone texting. You can't be scrolling the internet. Like, you got to sit there and watch. It. It is such a strange piece of art. And it's so crude. And it's, I don't know, I feel like it's a very brave thing to put something like that on the internet because it's it's unpolished, it's imperfect, you know? I suppose as, as this podcast is, it's not a perfect thing, but it is still some kind of art, right? And there are people who will appreciate it, myself obviously included, um... What's, what's really important, if you go to sit down and watch it and you are interrupted, I, it's probably better that you stop and start over. That feels, that feels like an ultimatum, kind of. But say you're sitting there and you're watching this movie and your friend walks into your house and says, Oh, hey, what you watching? And they take your attention away for even a split second it's going to be hard for you to put yourself back into the trance that it should put you in. It is, I don't know, it's a, it's such a unique piece of art. You need to experience it from tip to tail in its entirety. 
And if you're familiar with Shrek, it'll be very easy to follow along. Because it's the same story. Here comes another transition, and I'm gonna sing about how I was gonna do an etymology section, and I forgot. So here's just the next section. Um, here's a weird idea, a thought that I had. When you go to a church, or a religious event of some kind, you you can really feel the effects of that church, right? You, you feel welcome. You feel, I don't know, happy for the most part. I know there are people out there who don't feel happy in a church. And this, this metaphor isn't right for you, but stick with me a little bit because maybe you'll find it. Um, you go to church to feel the effects of church, right? You want to feel... Imagine the feeling, imagine the feeling of kindness, the people who share kindness. You're hanging around with people who share your beliefs, right? That's the important bit. They share your beliefs, they are kind towards you, and you feel like there's some good within them, right? There's a community. Imagine that you could bottle that community, right? You can get that feeling, those same feelings, alone in prayer if you, you know, if you let yourself. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine you could take the feeling of standing in the front row of a rock concert, right? You feel the drums in your chest. You feel the lyrics fill your brain until there's no room for other thoughts. You feel the vibrations of the guitar strings moving through your blood. You, you're standing among people who are all feeling the same way. They're receiving the same inputs, processing them, and they are outputting joy, just the same as you are, right? Also, you can grab that feeling and you can witness it solo as well, right? You listen to the same songs on a CD or stream it through your cell phone, right? Like you can... You can take those feelings of church. You can take the feelings of rock concert. You can condense them, right? What about when you're passing someone in the grocery store? You exchange a friendly smile, right? Whether you well know the person or not, right? Like, oh, this is someone I recognize, or this is someone that I'm good friends with, right? You... You can smile and spread a contagious joy, right? You exchanging some vibes, good vibes, through your literal community, right? I feel like you wouldn't mind taking that same experience and feeling it in a pill form, right? Bottle it up, take a swig of a rock concert, right? That's what drug users do, okay? They want to feel that same community. They want to know that the experiences that they experience are shared experiences, right? Because that is what makes people feel good when you feel like you belong. You ever been in a club, golf club even, like a, or a youth group or a church? Are you still a part of that group? 
or have you moved on from it? Can you think of some community you've been involved in that you have moved on from? It hey, do you remember being friends with people in high school and not speaking to those friends again after all this time? Like, do you feel as though you're better than before you were in that community? You grew because you were welcome, right? Now, I want you to imagine a community that you don't feel like you would be welcome in. For me, an easy pick of a community I wouldn't feel welcome in is something like a yacht club, right? They expect a certain level of attire, a certain level of poise, a certain level of yacht ownership that I definitely do not have. Wouldn't you at least be happy that you could still find a community outside of that space? Like, hey, I can still go golfing with people who don't own yachts and have a great time, right? I don't have to be hanging out with those people. And here, here's the point that I'm getting to. Supervised consumption sites create those same communities for people who wouldn't quite be welcome at your grocery store or your rock concert or your church, but perhaps with helpful resources that these sites would have, and the community of other people who are living the same lives, feeling the same experiences, sharing the same beliefs, these unfortunate folks can rise above their current station and reach for higher and higher clubs, right? Places that they feel comfortable. Wouldn't you like the option of one day joining that yacht club? If only things were a little bit more comfortable for you, maybe you could, right? You should support, be in support of supervised consumption sites. Be in, be in support of social support programs in general. Hey, I'm at 38 minutes and, uh, well, that's basically all the content that I had time for. I did uh, forget to do any etymology research, so I'll leave you with a small little tidbit. My name is Bradley Cooper, and you can break that down into a couple of interesting parts. Bradley is a compound word, if you take it as a word. Uh, Brad is diminutive of uh, the word broad, right? Large, wide, that makes sense. The word makes sense to you. And Lee, L-E-A, is an old English word for a field. Did I already go over this? I'm pretty sure I already went over this. Oh, good one. Uh, this is about how much research I did. Anyways, yeah. oh yeah, it was in the episode about shrapnel. God, I'm a genius. Ain't I a genius? You guys listen to this because I'm a genius, right? Um, on to the last name. Cooper is the profession of someone who makes barrels for the purpose of having a barrel. Barrels to put on a ship to preserve food, preserve alcohol, wine, um, 
on long trips across the ocean, right? So most, most ships would have a cooper on them, right? Like a lot of ships might have a blacksmith, right? Or a baker, right? Um, so you walk off the ship into the new world and you're some old cooper. And like, oh yeah, here's my name. I am Stephen P. Cooper. I don't really... I don't really know how far back my tree goes there. There's some assumptions I've made, but uh, I don't know. I think I'll delve into that a little bit more in the episode with my dad. I plan on interviewing him in the next couple of weeks. Uh, him and my older sister, they uh, are the last two from my immediate family. Before we start moving on to the next sections of the podcast anyways uh i'm gonna finish with you know what if i don't say it now let well y'all know the theme song is by eagle boy and nx Pantin, right that's a big it's a big beautiful piece of art and i love it and i'm so glad that he's allowed me to use it you're my boy blue i miss seeing you you know that eagle boy I miss seeing you. I hope you're doing all right, man. Anyways, as I was going to say before I went into that, I was going to prepare a bit. A bit? Is that right? I was going to prepare a piece where I talked about how I'm pretty sure um, Dave Grohl sold his soul to the devil. And I... I don't want to really say that because, well, it could be construed as slander, and I don't want that, right? But let's let's just say it's a conspiracy, okay? Let's talk about this as a conspiracy. If you sold your soul to the devil to be a successful rock musician, you would end up in a band like Nirvana, Right? Nirvana did very well. They are well-loved, right? And, um... But then, you know, Kurt Cobain died. Was murdered. He was murdered. And... You know, the career is over. Except Dave Grohl went on to form the Foo Fighters. Right? Which he has said is a stupid name because foo is old military slang or general American slang for like UFOs. So he's like, yeah, we fight all the aliens. Get out of here, you space things. It's a stupid name. Um, he also went on to create them crooked vultures. You know, like he is a very, very successful musician. Kind of like you would be if you sold your soul to the devil to be a successful rock musician, right? And here's the thing that really sells it for me. People say all the time, hey, Dave Grohl is like one of the nicest people on the planet, right? Like he goes to bars and sits down and eats a, eats a sandwich and gives the waitress a $10,000 tip, right? Like they're, walks into a restaurant 
and pays for everyone's bill who is eating, right? Like, he goes out and he does these acts of charity, of benevolence, right? Kind of like he's trying to buy his way back into heaven, right? Kind of like he sold his soul to the devil, feels bad about it, and thinks, hey, maybe if I do enough good works, maybe if I am a good enough person, if my soul is so pure and good and wholesome that when the devil tries to take it after I die, that God's just going to reach on down and say, nope, that's one of mine. But that's just a conspiracy theory. I love Dave Grohl. And let's not talk about the fact that his drummer died the same day that he released a heavy metal spoof album. Thanks for listening to my show, guys. I made it 45 minutes. Yeah, there's a lot of dead air in there, a lot of pauses. Um, I want to thank you guys for continuing to support me. Um, I love you all very much. And I'm glad that I know most of you. Keep fighting the good fight. Stand against racism. Be the underdog. And don't sell your soul to the devil. I'll catch you next week. I love you all.